FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Joining us again today is Kate Holm, who's a naturopath, nutritionist, speaker, and previous lecturer who recently took on her most important and exciting role as a mum and a mum to be. Kate has always had a professional devotion to children, and her interest in preconception and fertility care drives her passion so that couples may experience the joy of parenthood with the best possible health outcomes for their children. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Kate, how are you going? I'm well, thanks for having me again. Our pleasure. Now, today it's part two of paediatric or common paediatric complaints. So we're gonna be talking about respiratory illnesses. So I guess to start, we must start with the big baddie that everybody knows about. Let's start Mm. with asthma. Mm. So asthma, hugely on the rise within our paediatric population, I guess just within the population on the whole. In 1982, there was about 10% of children who were affected by asthma. And then in 2002, and believed to be roughly the same today, that's increased to about 36%. So despite all of you know our advances in medicine and health, there are certain conditions that are definitely still on the rise. And following on from our previous podcast about um, skin complaints and beach chat about eczema, we sort of see asthma as that next progression in that atopic march. So really dysregulated immune system um, and yeah I guess a whole number of factors that can be underlying that. You just hit the nail on the head dysregulated immune system I mean Mm. there's the million dollar question isn't it how can we bring back regulation and priming to our Mm. immune system but it seems like uh, you know once you've once you've set a, a poor foundation doesn't matter how you change the house on top, you're always going to have a wonky house. So it goes right back to how can we intercede with preconception and fertility management? That's really where the beauty lies. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so passionate about getting couples, Mm. you know, before the baby has even been conceived because not only are you then, you know, changing habits within a household and, you know, whether that's dietary habits or use of chemicals or, or other things around the house, you're actually able to affect the DNA of that child that's conceived and then all of the development in utero, which we know has a huge impact on you know, the the gut microbiome on the regulation and appropriate regulation of the immune system. And then hopefully the reduction in um, some of these conditions that we are seeing really, really increase in that paediatric population. Yeah, it's a big one. 
Yeah. And I mean, talking about that immune priming, I mean, we, we cannot move forward without mentioning the, the use of probiotics here. And, you know, the successful trial with Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG only was successful when you gave it in the last trimester of pregnancy. Once that mm. baby's born, the immune system is primed. Yeah, absolutely. And during pregnancy, even looking at the use of antibiotics and also the use of paracetamol and other medications as well, but that's been shown as well to increase the risk of asthma. Um, so it's not even just bub's exposure to, say, antibiotics in those early days and you know months, years of life, but also in utero again and how that's impacting um, that priming of the immune system. So yes, definitely we want mum to have a huge focus on that gut microbiota and gut health and good diet and all of those things that we should be aiming for through pregnancy anyway. And this is coming from a currently pregnant woman who's seriously struggled to maintain a good diet. So <laughs> I really empathise and I'm just like keeping my so fingers <laughs> for this baby <laughs> yeah so if i birth a corn chip i wouldn't be surprised um but there is so much that we can do and we know that that's you know evidence-based and is going to help to at least reduce the risk i think there's never any guarantees but when we have this window of opportunity um we really should do whatever we can to um mitigate something that can then have these ongoing effects you know through childhood but then also through adulthood adulthood as well we're I want to get on to antibiotics a little bit later, but mm. can we talk about paracetamol safety a little bit? Yeah. Please? Yeah. So I think it's, I mean, it's being deemed to be safe in pregnancy. Um, and so a lot of women do use it fairly it, routinely, I it guess. It's the archetypical safe drug during pregnancy yeah. throughout my yeah. nursing career. That was in any exam, if you didn't know the answer, paracetamol. <laughs> and even through childhood, you know, we think of infancy and children who are teething, children who have fevers, children who are just a bit fussy, you're not really sure why. Um, children's Panadol just flies off the shelf and it's very, very commonly given to children. But we do know that it's perhaps not as safe as we once thought. And this is largely to do with how the body has to metabolize it and how it's depleting glutathione as a result. So glutathione obviously being very, very important, internal antioxidant, um, supporting all of those detox pathways. And with that, you know, one dose of paracetamol, yes, it's gonna have an impact, whether that impact is prolonged and something that we need to get too upset about, couldn't say for sure, but definitely that repeated use of antibiotics, uh, sorry, not antibiotics, paracetamol, um, is going to deplete that glutathione and then basically muck up those detox pathways. So when you've got a child, for example, who's fevering or trying to get on top of some kind of infection, then not being able to effectively detoxify um, or have that internal antioxidant status is obviously going to be problematic um, on many levels, really. Now, there's something I haven't looked at, and that is what is we know that paracetamol is more toxic than what we originally thought. Yeah. And when you think about toxicity, you yeah. have to also include or more contemplate um, the risk of overdosage. And, and kids, forgive me, let me word this properly. Paracetamol overdose is the most common admission to emergency units in Australia for childhood drug overdose. Um, mm. 
given that, I don't know if normal dosing mm. or how much normal dosing shows an adverse outcome. I haven't looked on the DAEN, the data, database of adverse event notification. I haven't looked and tried to tease out children's paracetamol specifically. But mm. you know that something that really interested me was a an old paper now by Catherine Lozapone, Lozapone, mm. and... And she spoke of the P-cresol sulfate, which mm -hmm. is a metabolite from, and I'm, I get this as a broad term, dysbiosis. So here's my question. Could the previous or overuse of antibiotics, even in the mother, predispose mm -hmm. the infant to a poor microbiota diversity and therefore mm -hmm. be setting them up for a higher risk of paracetamol toxicity. And for our overseas listeners and viewers, forgive me, paracetamol is equivalent to what you would say acetaminophen. Same diff, mm. same drug. Sorry, over to you, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if that was just a, a thought or a I question. Wonder. I would say potentially, but I don't have an answer. But um, I mean, for sure, what we know about the gut microbes and their effect on detoxification and then even, you know, thinking about the um, like reduction of glutathione and then prolonged dosage with paracetamol, how appropriate is that same dose level over a long period of time when the body now has reduced detoxification capacity? So I think there's a lot of questions and I think if we can educate parents and families on alternatives and things that they can do rather than just jumping straight to that, totally understand that that's challenging when you've got a really unsettled or fevering infant and you don't have the knowledge that we have as healthcare practitioners um but yeah that's where we want to catch them early so we can <laughs> educate them and give them other tools in their toolkit so that we're not jumping to these things which we know do have um side effects down the track well here's the other here's the other safe medication i'm, I'm using quote air quotation marks <laughs> when i say the word safe uh, touted as being safe, um, mm -hmm. and that is um, ibuprofen. Now I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm waiting for an avalanche of early age esophageal or stomach ulceration in kids. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm yeah. just waiting for it. Mm. And even if we just look at, um, I guess, the number of infants that are diagnosed with having some sort of reflux or colic or just that really unsoothable and constantly unsettled infant, um, you've got to wonder what's going on within their stomach. And it's obviously a population that we're going to avoid doing a scope if we possibly can. So we don't know for sure. But yeah, again, hard to say, like, is that actually what's having an effect? Um, I'd say it's something that's worth definitely keeping in mind. And again, if we can jump to alternatives and just take that potential risk factor out, then that's going to be better. And we know that ibuprofen also um, increases the risk of development of asthma. Um, so taken in those early years as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So now that we've breached that issue of medications for pain relief and we've gotten off, <laughs> off respiratory. I think we need to offer our viewers, our listeners, some sort of options, natural options, perhaps. So for instance, with teething, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll do a totally different podcast yeah, I know, today. I know. We'll come back. We'll get back <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so, I mean, 
uh, I don't want to name products necessarily, but there's a really fantastic homeopathic product that you can um, buy like as a practitioner, which is like really good for pain of any sort in children, whether it's teething pain, you know, unsettled tummy, um, that just you're not really sure they're disgruntled. Chamomile is sort of the herb of choice for infants and definitely with teething. I feel that often people are a little bit scared to use herbs in young mm. children mm. but we can use them very very gently and even chamomile tea my son has always loved to have a bottle of chamomile tea so just like leave that to brew really really strong um, and you'll actually get some of those active constituents which are very very calming great for that pain relief um, if we're talking fevering then again there's like your good old yep tea, so the yarrow, elder and peppermint, fantastic for helping to break that fever and tastes really good. So herbal wow. teas are fantastic for administering to children. You obviously, in a child who hasn't started solids yet, you wouldn't be giving them like a huge bottle of tea, but you can give them like a strongly brewed um, tea, just a few spoonfuls here and there. And they're so sensitive that often they don't need much more than that. Um, and that's where homeopathics work really, really beautifully as well. So I think also educating parents around um, the purpose of a fever. And yes, in children, we don't want that to be getting like ridiculously high to the point of like febrile convulsions. And also it's about maintaining comfort for the baby or child, but that the fever is actually serving a purpose. So if we can support the child and support the body through that fever, then for whatever reason it's in there in the first place, that will actually um, help to reduce that. So if there's, yeah, virus or bacteria or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else for a fever. Well, a, oh, a, a warm bath. Sorry. Yeah, warm bath. Um, teething, doing, yeah, you go. say topically, um, you know, like lavender essential oil can be quite nice. Um, even you can make up a little like very diluted blend of essential oils with a bit of like clove bud in there as well, which is really, really analgesic and quite numbing. And, you know, if you dilute that heavily in a bit of olive oil, you can rub that on the gums or coconut oil or whatever oil of choice. Um, so there's lots of things that we have in our toolkit. Actually chewing on, again, if they've started solids, um, frozen uh, capsicum sticks can be great okay. watching that they don't bite it off yes. because we don't want them to choke on the big chunks of capsicum but the capsaicin is again quite analgesic and when it's frozen it's really oh. nice and soothing on the gums so there's there's plenty that we can do there's heaps and lots of bottles, lots of breastfeeds all of those nice things i'd so wished i'd known that when i when my kids were younger yeah yeah and i think um you know it's never nice seeing your child going through something that's causing them discomfort yeah. but i also feel that our role as parents and our role as clinicians is not to completely remove all of the discomfort like it's virtually impossible so giving those painkillers it's going to shut off you know that pain pathway they're not going to feel it great everybody gets sleep everybody's happy however it's a process and I don't want to say it's just part of life, but it kind of is just part of life. And if you can support them through it and be there, you know, like it might mean that everybody's up for a few nights and that's pretty exhausting and it's really hard to navigate when you're working full time and, you know, doing all the things of the, the world of out there. <laughs> but it's what they need. Yeah. They need cuddles. They need your love and usually that's quite good pain relief in itself. Absolutely. And, yeah, breathing. Right. Also. It's exactly right that... 
we very often, too often, underestimate the power of a hug for reducing yes. the stress as, which amplifies pain, um, the sensation yeah. of pain. Um, teething rings. I, you know, I remember going through this. We all had frozen teething rings when we were kids, and then they were yeah. evil. They were totally evil. They were going to 100% cause, you know, a ripping off of the gun line because of that humidity frozen mm. issue, which has happened, dumb and dumber, anyone, um, you know, tongue <laughs> stuck to the pole, right? Yeah. So it, it can happen, but it's rare. But what about yeah. just making it cool? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you had something in the freezer and then it was out at room temperature and in your hands for a little while, like it's not going to be so frozen anymore, um, I think... Yeah, but even just a teething ring, normal at room temperature, just something that they're rubbing on the gums can be really helpful as well. Um, and, you know, each child will cope with it differently. Some children, their teeth will just pop through and you're like, oh, hello there. And then there's definitely other teeth in the mouth which are a bit bigger and a bit more painful. So I think, yeah, just navigating it as best you can. It's not necessarily an easy time. It's so relentless. I feel yeah. like it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and like I'm um, with Jude at the moment I'm just like <laughs> waiting for those two-year-old molars to come through and then I think we're done um but yeah you've just got to work with them again and like everything that we do it's supporting the body to do what it's naturally trying to do and trusting that we do have the ability to move through it um especially with a little bit of extra help now, we've gone from teething, which is part of the respiratory, you know, oropharyngeal <laughs> area, but, but, um, but it does impact, particularly when they've got the accessory or sometimes comorbid condition, that is the otitis media. Mm -hmm. So let's chat yep. about that because that's fraught with um, conundrums, even medically. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is another condition that's absolutely on the rise and where they used to see the sort of peak onset of otitis media around four to six years of age, mm -hmm. it's now happening much, much earlier. So even before six months of age, but that sort of peak around six to 12 months. Right. Um, and they say that by two years of age, around 90% of children have had um, an ear infection um, and often, especially if it's occurred, earlier that will be more likely to recur um, and be more severe as it goes on so yes definitely one that pops up um, a lot and interestingly so I personally as a child had heaps of ear infections I've been meaning and this has just reminded me again that I want to check with mum when it first occurred for me but it was recurrent through my childhood and I had many many courses of antibiotics as a result yeah. I can still vividly remember the hideous tasting banana antibiotic syrup, whatever yeah. that was. Um, and so when I got to college and we were doing some um, of our assignments, I can't remember which subject it was for, but we had to research the use of antibiotics and find um, research papers that supported antibiotic usage for a particular condition so i was like oh great i'll do ear infections because obviously that's going to be you know something where antibiotics are really useful it's how i've always had them um so i just assumed that that was you know an area where they were <laughs> really effective mm. and much to my surprise at the time i feel less surprised now yeah. but there's very, very little evidence um, to support the use of antibiotics with ear infection. Um, it didn't show any reduction or any significant reduction in 
um, pain. Yep. It didn't oh, show any okay. reduction in um, the duration of the infection, and it didn't. Show, it, it somewhat helped with um, reducing the risk of it becoming bilateral. Mm -hmm but it didn't change anything to do with the recurrence of the infection no, either. So I remember reading that and thinking, but what else would you do for an ear infection? Because personally, that was all that I'd known. Um, that's the only experience that I'd had. And the other interesting thing when they've looked at the data is that the antibiotic usage comes with other risk factors. So either like um, diarrhea or vomiting or rashes, that sort of thing, which then it's kind of negates that very small benefit that you may receive um, from taking them in the first place. So I found that really interesting and that's always stuck with me. Um, it, but it, it is actually, sorry. Oh, no, no, you go. I was just going to say um, it's the prescribing of antibiotics for acute otitis media is actually the most common um, or one of the most common prescriptions in the Western world. So, yeah, I find that really interesting. And yet it's got a... Uh, a bomb um, emoji, what do you call it, um, icon in the, uh, what do you call it, the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine. Right. Um, yeah. It's a bomb. It's controversial. And my knowledge was that it, it had no, no effect on the longevity or severity of otitis media, but it might impact on pain. I think but, there so that's was really interesting. little to no um, Right improvement in pain yeah. in and it was in different time frames as well so i think okay. if it was taken within the first I, I actually don't have the exact number of days written down but it was different if it was like in the less than seven days or greater than seven days or something along those lines um, yeah, yeah but, but i think it's very really interesting also yeah. they've, they've again they've looked at probiotics mm -hmm. or otitis media because let's face it i mean it comes from the throat it goes up the yeah. eustachian tube. That's how you, and it closes off because kids have got really small eustachian yeah. tubes. That's it. So we've always got to think about, well, why are those eustachian tubes closing off? Granted that they're smaller, is there mm. something inflaming them? And then you get right back onto food sensitivities. And, <laughs> and we're going to discuss it, so we may as well discuss it now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a broken record because every <laughs> chat that we have, it's honestly, it's going to come back to some of the same basics, which I think, again, as clinicians is actually quite empowering because we can see that there's so much that we can do for our patients and it's not just going to affect, <clears throat> excuse me, one aspect of their health. We can have this really far-reaching effect over not just their health today even, but future presentations as well. So definitely one of the big ones um, that pops up with regard to actually all of your respiratory conditions but definitely um, with that otitis media is cow's milk um, so whether that's a true cow's milk you know allergy or whether that's more of a food intolerance both of them can um, have an impact but also that's going to affect if there's asthma if there's allergic rhinitis if there's um, you know recurrent tonsillitis or enlarged adenoids um, kind of anything that we can think of within that entire respiratory tract. So I guess tracking back as well as to maybe why we're seeing this um, increased occurrence in a younger population is the reduction in breastfeeding or the sort of early 
um, cessation of breastfeeding and then moving on to a cow's milk formula. So babies are now potentially being introduced to that cow's milk protein earlier than they were before. So I do think that we really need to be protective of women's breastfeeding journeys and try to encourage that as much as possible because we know that there are protective effects not only for um, otitis media and reducing the risk there, but all of these kind of atopic presentations, so the asthma, the eczema, um, and really anything <laughs> with the immune system. But then you get back into that priming, don't you? I mean, if, yeah. if the mothers had a history of you know, you mentioned it yourself, you know, when they were younger, the multiple episodes of otitis media, multiple causes of antibiotics. So their gut bacteria is messed up. And again, I'll refer back to this Catherine Lozapone um, mm. paper, which the the discussion was, abs was actually about that, how okay. multiple causes of antibiotics can muck up the garden. Now, mm. um, uh, forgive me, and and set it to a poor garden was, was her point. So when you talk about what her point was being made, when you talk about missing microbes, you know, by the, these eminent professors in microbiology, mm -hmm. when you talk about how we know, you know, that we're causing antibiotic resistance by the overuse and over-prescribing of antibiotics, the mm -hmm. inappropriate sometimes use of, anti of antibiotics, um, then how much do we have to work on the mother mm. to be able to get good, nutritious, full of enzymes, less reactive antigens, milk into the baby? Yeah. I think it's definitely important to, um, to work on mum and when we're thinking about supporting that, you know, first inoculation, well, it's actually not even the first inoculation, you're getting some exposure to those microbes um, in utero, but then obviously if there's a vaginal birth, it's that they get that big influx of microbes. So we really want mum to have good microbiota of her own to pass on to bub in that instance. But in terms of breastfeeding, and I, I should probably look into this a little bit more deeply, but I feel like breast milk is such a dynamic um, food and it's always changing to adjust to bub's needs. So if mum, if you can capture mum in that preconception window and yes, do some gut work, but make sure that she's really well nourished and that she's nutritionally replete in other regards and then continuing to eat well through breastfeeding, I really believe that that food is just so powerful and yes, yeah, so dynamic that the effect of her perhaps less good gut in earlier life shouldn't be too much of an impact on bub, um, especially when we're, you know, getting all of like that great colostrum in those early days and then even like the lactoferrin and how breast milk itself has antimicrobial properties so that we're supporting um, the or encouraging the development of those beneficial microbes in bub's gut, yeah. even if perhaps they weren't always there in mum. But I'm not saying that from I haven't done a clinical trial myself, but that's my understanding of um, the power of breast milk, really. You know, this I'm winding back, forgive me to, for doing this, but I'm winding back to that <laughs> paracetamol issue with the glutathionation. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading some research. Now, this the, the actual research was on a multi-level marketing product, but all of this raw material, as long as it's well-produced, it would be applicable to and that is whey mm. now i get that it's from cows but it's not milk 
its mm. way. You do get some similar proteins, but a vastly different molecular makeup, particularly the immune fractions. Um, do you find that it's sometimes beneficial to give, say, the mother the whey? And we should stress mm. it's got to be properly made. It's got to be, you know, unheated. I shouldn't, shouldn't say unheated, but it's flash-heated, um, but it's undenatured. So you get the uh, intact immune complexes, complexes, the immunoglobulins, the lactoferrin, lactoperoxidase. Do you ever find giving that to the mum might be beneficial to help her nutritional status? Yeah. I actually couldn't answer that question. I have to confess I'm pretty anti-dairy <laughs> as a food for humans, so I tend to steer away from um, any sort of yeah milk proteins like or whey protein. I do like colostrum, though, um, and I know that some of the um, colostrum powders they do have a whey component. So in that instance, like, I think that's amazing, but I've never used it um, specifically to support breastfeeding. So I actually couldn't answer that question. Well, what about the mother's innate colostrum? I mean, this mm. is something that I feel is sorely missing. I, I, I understand the issues of breastfeeding. I get it. I'm not being draconian mm. about it. I just wish that more women would be aware of the importance yeah. of even if it even if they didn't want to breastfeed for whatever purpose i get it i understand i'm not judging you but if they were just aware of yeah. how beneficial those first few days weeks of colostrum is mm -hmm. oh man it, talking yeah. about changing an immune priming oh. in the gut of that infant but even the continued breastfeeding. So, um, I mean, the World Health Organization still recommends that you're exclusively breastfeeding your infants to six months. And absolutely, some women have medical reasons why they can't breastfeed. I do think that those women who are making a choice for other reasons not to breastfeed, perhaps again, if we could catch them earlier and do a lot more education um, and you know, look, it's not going to be right for everyone. And again, it's not to pass judgment, but I think when we're statistically seeing so many changes um, to the health of our paediatric population, and we know that there's so much that we can do to support that through this immune priming and through priming the gut microbes that we just really need to, um, it's also like, I think the judgment goes both ways. Like it's people who are pro breastfeeding. It's not to, you know, I think that shouldn't be judged either and that it's not trying to force a different ideology on someone, but rather it is evidence-based and we know that there's no food on the planet like it. And if we can just, yeah, get through it and give whatever support that mum needs to make that happen, then, I yeah, I really think we should aim for that. You make a brilliant point, an absolute brilliant point. Sometimes we get so beaten down in being politically correct that mm -hmm. we forget to give the actual evidence yeah. um, and, and we're, we're too too scared of of mm -hmm. standing up for the actual truth mm -hmm. so i i wholeheartedly adhere to what you say that that's brilliantly said i think we all mm -hmm. should all be stronger in saying sorry it's just passing on information like ultimately each mum and each you know mother baby unit has the final decision um but yeah i do think that we should yeah, maybe take a bit more responsibility with what we do know and gently, of course, and, you know, with as much support as that person needs, just, yeah, 
be encouraging. Um, and I think that, you know, the the way that formula is available and is promoted kind of has a lot to answer for as well because it's quite in your face. Um, so I think women... And it's, it's very an caring, e isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it makes it an an easy option where I think there can be so many steps in between to perhaps just savour that relationship for a little bit longer, if possible. And if not possible, then we employ the other strategies that we have to go in and mop up anything that we think, you know, might be missing or um, any sort of side effects that we think that baby might have. So there's always something we can do on either side of the equation. But, yeah, it's definitely something that I'm passionate about being protective of. I think also when we're talking about the, the era of convenience and also pressure on women to work as well as look after a very young infant, um, mm -hmm. I think the manufacturers of breast pumps have a lot to answer for too. Please, mm -hmm. can we get more designed by mums? I mean, <laughs> some of them were just, they were, they were suitable for cars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some interesting contraptions out there. I'm just thankful that when I went back to work, like the main population that I work with is mums and babies. So if ever I needed to excuse myself for, or if I ever started, sorry, if it's too much information, but like leaking through my top, yeah. then they're all like, oh, it's fine. I understand. So I can, <laughs> but I can, you're right. It's I, a I, challenge. Yeah, I, I remember one of the big things from my sisters when they had their children's was the homemade double-sided flannels sewn together in a star <laughs> to put in their bras, you know. It was, yeah. Just, yeah, it was a must. There's you know? much nicer bamboo and, you yeah. know, reusable breast pads these days, thankfully. Come on, come on. So we've mentioned it before with Otitis Media and we've gone there a little bit, but infections, we have to go here. So... Um, you, how long's a piece of string for this one? How many hours have you got? But let's start with croup. Yeah, yep. So croup is actually a symptom, not an infection in itself. So some children, you know, as a result of a virus or a bacterial infection will then go on to develop croup. So that's that typical like seal barking cough. Mm. Um, and some children could have the same virus and not have symptoms of croup at all. So I'm not actually sure why some children are more inclined to develop that particular type of cough, um, but it can be quite distressing, like not generally leading to, um, although, I mean, with any kind of respiratory infection, it can lead to difficulty breathing, but generally croup is just very noisy um, and can be quite disruptive of sleep and keep children up at night. So in that instance, it's more about um, keeping the child comfortable and I guess employing, you know, the herbs and the things that we have to just soothe that cough so that they can actually get some sleep and obviously supporting the immune system with all our great antivirals and everything else that we can do there um, to target whatever that initial infection was but yeah definitely that's a noisy one it's going to keep the whole house awake at night um, and can be quite concerning for families if they've never heard a cough like that before as well that's right. and we'll talk about different differential diagnosis with an, a much more serious disease uh, a little mm -hmm. bit later but um, what about remedial things like you know the the hot um, steamy bathroom, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Really can help. So, you know, again, lots of cuddles, no matter how old your child is, and go and sit in the bathroom with them, turn on the shower, close the doors, close the windows, keep the fan off, and just allow that room to steam up. Um, also doing, again, depending on the age, but doing um, like an inhalation of 
like steam can be really useful just to kind of like relax the airways and loosen anything that might be sitting there. The croup kind of cough generally is a drier cough. It's not overly productive. Yeah, so they can also end up with like quite a sore little throat um, or even a sore chest. So doing, yeah, like some nice teas or Manuka honey can be really soothing just to give them that um, relief, I guess, from, yeah, that discomfort that they're there, feeling. There's some beautifully crafted, I'll say that word, um, uh, herbal remedies as well um mm -hmm. we are non-branded at at um fx medicine but um <laughs> let's just say from new zealand um <laughs> but beautifully crafted childhood remedies particularly for soothing oh. respiratory tract as well in a yeah. lovely tasting base yeah definitely and i think also um if we are doing herbs and supplements with our children, some parents are all for it and they're happy to just go with your recommendation. Others really like to see on the label that it's made for kids and then you'll have that child-appropriate dosage. So for peace of mind of parents, sometimes going for an actually pre-formulated product can be a good thing. And the brand that we won't mention, um, I believe you can buy over the counter. So that's also quite useful. I believe parents can get it very <laughs> Um, yeah. But it's just, it's beautifully crafted and very sensibly crafted because there is a, 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 a caveat that we have to say with regards to honey in under mm. 12 months old. Mm. So, well, so the current recommendation is to avoid honey in children under 12 months for the risk of botulism. So having that organism potentially present um, and then, yeah, obviously you don't want them to contract that. That said... Yeah however yeah I, I mean i think fact of generations and i would yeah. absolutely not be advising this but you know our parents and grandparents generation used to dip dummies into honey so that the child would take the dummy and anyways uh, not to say that i'm encouraging that but um I yeah i guess one of those things that we have to say but yeah. let's think about let's say the hadza tribe who uh intake 30 odd percent of their calories during summer from honey mm -hmm. uh, and oh, that wow. is, yeah massive amount from Gosh. honey um they're not overweight and I, I don't know about the reporting or anything like that but you know that tribe has survived um like manuka honey in particular is so fantastic for anything respiratory and for kids because it tastes great they're going to happily take it it can be a really good way to get actually other herbs into them you know mix a few drops of your herbs with a teaspoon of honey and they'll down that no problem yeah. generally speaking but also is really anti-inflammatory it's antimicrobial if it's anything you know throat or chest you're going to get that lovely sort of local action um so i think honey can actually be really really therapeutic um and going back to our last chat, it's great topically as well. So absolutely. definitely honey is something we should keep in our medicine kit. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like Manuka honey has the fame um, mm. and it has been shown to have antimicrobial action. They've patented the UMF, unique Manuka factor. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not to say that, say, jellybush, a related species <laughs> in Australia, doesn't have any micro antimicrobial action. Yeah, yeah. It does. And even a good raw honey will generally have some yeah. antimicrobial and definitely that anti-inflammatory activity. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, well, for kids, it's all about compliance as well. So <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Um, now, croup 
and we we said before that we'll do this differential diagnosis so can you tell us a little bit about the differential cough the bark from the hoop of whooping cough yeah so i mean I don't know if I can reenact either of them without sending <laughs> myself into a cough frenzy. Um, but it, they they will actually sound quite different. And so generally with the whooping or the yeah, the whooping cough from whooping cough, they um, children will really struggle or anyone who has it will struggle to take that inward breath. So they're getting that more like the sound is more on the inhalation and the croup cough is often on the exhalation. Um, with croup, you, and never say never because absolutely depending on, you know, the other symptoms of the virus and how well that child is, it can progress to that respiratory distress. But generally, as I was saying, it's just a bit noisy and disruptive. Whereas whooping cough, you will actually find that often the child will cough to a point where maybe they are changing colour, so going blue or even going red in the face first. Um, they can cough to a point where they're vomiting. They're often quite distressed because they're not really getting that much air in. Um, and whooping cough, absolutely get them to hospital. Croup, on the other hand, possibly something you can manage at home. Um, just, again, depending on, like, still keep your eyes out for all of those other changes with any respiratory condition with kids, so, or with anyone, actually. So whether it's bronchitis or bronchiolitis or just your common cold with a bit of a cough, it's, as long as the person is able to breathe and their rate of breathing is not rap really rapid or really, really decreased, you don't want to see any, particularly in kids, you'll start to get what they call the tracheal truck tracheal tug sorry where you're actually getting um you can see from the outside that the neck is kind of getting sunken in with the breath and also around the ribs and the abdomen so they'll be showing those physical signs of like the breath is really labored and they're starting to use some of those accessory muscles to try to actually intake that oxygen um we don't want to see any change in color so whether they're going really really red or going really blue particularly like around the face the lips and the mouth um, if the breathing is really noisy, so not when they're coughing, but they're getting that kind of like really rattling or whistling, um, that's obviously not great. Mm. So, and yeah, if the child is seeming distressed or otherwise like really unwell, then definitely consider it to be a medical emergency because in kids, things can progress really quickly and in both directions, they can get well in just as much time as they got unwell um, but I think it's always better to be on the safe side with our little ones and particularly when it's coming to breathing. And can I just impress the importance of calling an ambulance to you rather yeah. than trying to make it to the hospital thinking yeah. that you're going to get there in time because if you have an emergent situation along the way and you have to stop an ambulance can't find you at what yeah. street corner. Um, yeah. You know, we are blessed in Australia to have such a fast response time with ambulances. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that differs in the country, which sadly has different outcomes. But in urban areas, at least, we are very blessed. Um, now, there was something else I was going to mention there. Yeah. So. And I guess we as, um, you know, naturopaths, nutritionists, like whoever else is listening, if we're not doctors, then like if patients are contacting you concerned about these presentations, 
we'd actually, it's good to know, it's good to have information, but we don't need to do the diagnosis. It's always like send them to their doctor, send them to the hospital, particularly, as I said, when it's coming to respiratory issues and in children. Um, so go through with them those, you know, warning signs and things to look out for. And if they're, if it is croup, for example, and they're just like, oh, my child's got a really noisy cough, then it's not necessarily a medical emergency. You can actually do some support for them. Great that we can do things online so you don't necessarily need to bring an infection child into your practice um, but if they are showing yeah any of that respiratory distress or any of the other signs that I mentioned then just get them straight to the hospital because that's where they're going to be in the best hands um, and be able to get that proper diagnosis. Uh, I think we need to move on also to I said it before the stricture of the bronchus what about the bronchioles the bronchiolitis yeah. or indeed bronchiectasis? Yeah, so bronchiolitis is the most common lower respiratory um, infection that you'll see in infants and fairly common. I mean, I guess when babies are born, their lungs, like they're developed, but they're still developing, um, same with their immune system. So they are definitely more susceptible to getting um those kinds of infections when they're unwell and also because they don't have that same cough reflex so babies actually can't like if they do have that mucus kind of pooling in the lungs they can't actually cough effectively to get it out so again that's going to be something that hopefully you're not seeing actually present in the clinic in front of you but you may have a patient who's you know their child has had it in the past but that again is kind of heading towards a medical emergency you definitely want that baby to have medical treatment and what about cystic fibrosis have you had any experience treating kids with this not treating cystic fibrosis actually um no i know that anecdotally and from what i've read um n-acetylcysteine is really fine i mean n-acetylcysteine is great for anything respiratory when we're talking that mucus production anyway as well as a million other things in the body but i know it's particularly good with that cystic fibrosis and i guess um and yeah sorry this is coming only from theory not from my actual experience but all of the typical things that you would do anyway to support the respiratory system so ensuring it's an anti-inflammatory diet, whatever that means for that person. So removing any foods that they're intolerant to, looking at those mucus-forming foods. So again, coming back to the cow's milk um, protein and whether that's something that should possibly not be in their diet. I definitely acknowledge my bias there. And just, I honestly almost put a clause on my um, website to say that I think everybody should have at least a month off gluten and dairy before booking an appointment with me because I feel like in so many cases symptoms would resolve. Wow. But anyway, I haven't yeah. done that. And, of course, that's not the solution in absolutely every person and there could be a bunch of people who would do that and show no improvement. But I just feel so strongly that those two things in combination, um, particularly when we're talking kids, are often if not the driver, then at least an aggravating factor. So do you yes. advocate an, a both or and or? Depends on the situation. So when we're talking respiratory, I would say it's much more likely to be the cow's milk protein. That's not a hard and fast rule, but if I had to pick one, I'd say, okay, let's go cow's milk protein. When we're talking skin, 
possibly more likely to be um, gluten, although definitely cow's milk protein. Again, talking like babies and being formula fed, that can often be an issue. And then when we're moving on to like behavioral and neurological stuff, I would say it's both, you've got to get both out. So, but that's a huge generalization and it's definitely not that simple. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I totally get it. Like there are so many pieces of string here and and we're, rely, we're, we're trying to oversimplify something that you've spent years perfecting. Um, <laughs> I don't think perfecting is even the word. <laughs> but um, but, but um, there was one point which I forgot to make earlier. That's what I was trying to remember. And that was when we were speaking about cow's milk earlier with regards mm -hmm. to asthma. And mm -hmm. that is that granted this will be relevant for a very small percentage of the population who are truly allergic to mm. cow's milk, not sensitive to cow's milk, right? Yeah. Most people are sensitive, a very small people amount of people have IgE um, mm. reactions. However, um, I noted that in terbutaline, which the trademark of which is Bricanil, so we can say that, that's fine, um, <laughs> they have the terbuhalers, the self-actuated um, the, basically, it's controlled by how much you inhale, right? Mm -hmm. And in there's two different ones on the market. The M2, gee, I hope I've got this right. The M2 one has no lactose in it. The M3 one does mm -hmm. have a small amount of lactose. And mm -hmm. I remember MIMS stating um, that there is a warning there for people who are truly allergic to cow's milk that they may indeed suffer a reaction. So if you're concerned about true allergy, use the M2 if you're using Bricanil. I mm -hmm. guess that's up to the doctor though. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's interesting. But good to know and good to flag if, you know, patients have started on these medications and are perhaps not getting any um, improvement or maybe are getting exacerbation, whether prolonged or just momentary after using it. I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting to, to know. Um, now, what was another one? Um, I was going to, I know that we're segueing here into food <laughs> allergies, but it's, it, it causes a respiratory, the anaphylaxis, and that is uh, peanut allergies. I yeah. mean, talking about something that's increased out of sight. I mean, this is yeah. just amazing. Mm. What's happening here? What, what do you think? <laughs> oh, gosh, I think all of the factors that we just continue to speak about so change in microbial diversity both internally but also in the environment um, change in everything else that's in the environment so when we're talking about an immune system that's just overstimulated from day one coming into a world that's you know very polluted or well actually generally coming into a room that's very sterile and then moving into an environment that's quite polluted and maybe you know use of household chemicals yeah. um, definitely looking at family history and again perhaps what's going on with the DNA that's being passed on to bub um, and you know mum's microbiome through um, pregnancy and all those things that we mentioned i guess as well we can't ignore like the food processing that's occurring and perhaps the you know the final food that's ending up in front of us is for whatever reason more highly allergenic so whether that's to do with what it's been sprayed with or how long it's been sitting on the shelf for or who knows what else um i think yeah utilization of those medications that we spoke about so both the paracetamol and the antibiotics and how that's changing you know gut integrity just um 
you know, that mucosal integrity and that barrier that we've got there. Probably, I know it's really tricky with the research because they're saying that introduction of those allergenic foods earlier, so definitely pre-12 months, but they're saying even from four months of age seems to show some reduction in the development of allergy. But I just feel like there's a bit of trouble with that thinking as well when we've got a lot of babies who are already at risk before they've even had the introduction of solids. Mm -hmm. So I'm just always really mindful to navigate that um, with the families based on their individual experience and obviously family history. But yeah, there's huge increase in allergy. And I think while not necessarily as severe and definitely not life-threatening, um, a huge increase in um, food intolerances and food sensitivities as well. So yeah, just I, this immune system going haywire in all I, regards. I yearn, I yearn for the day where perhaps from the work of, you know, Dan Lippman, Ivalio Ivanov, people like that at Columbia State Uni, New York State Uni, um, on these, I'm going to bang on about it again, segmented filamentous bacteria, the priming or one of at least the priming bacteria of our immune system, our infant, our infantile immune system. Um, and I wonder if one day, I hope one day, there is this way in which we can say this child is at increased risk, we need to do X therapy so that you don't prime for, you know, further atopy or even worse, you know, the anaphylaxis and things like that. I wonder, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess, you know, now is the time, though, Kate, that we, we have to think about therapy. So we need to wind <laughs> back about, you know, we've, we've discussed those beautiful herbs, those beautiful nutrients. We, you've mentioned NAC, which even has been used in a medical um, facility you used to have to have cystic fibrosis patients used to have inhaled NAC mm -hmm. um, so let's go through some of the nutrients first I know we we should have gone done this along the way <laughs> some of at least the key ones which we can use and then the herbs as well yeah for sure so let's start and with asthma. okay well nutrient wise with asthma the biggest one that I think of is actually magnesium and that's more around actually relaxing the airways and also relaxing all of like those intercostal muscles. Um, but that can really help with not only, I mean, if someone's having a full-blown asthma attack, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to give them magnesium. But um, as a bit of a like preventative or if you know that there's a particular, let's say it's exercise-induced or maybe it's, um, you know, seasonal or something like that where you can just give a little bit of a buffer and a bit of relief, um, I find magnesium to be fantastic. Vitamin C also is great. It's a really good natural antihistamine. Um, and there's actually research that has shown that having... Um, like a high dose of vitamin C before undertaking exercise, if you've got that exercise-induced asthma, can reduce the risk of actually having an asthma attack. Mm. Um, everything for, you know, mucous membranes. So looking at your omega-3s and cod liver oil is just my favourite for children yes. because you've then got that naturally occurring vitamin A and vitamin D, which also is so supportive of those mucous membranes. Um, zinc, we can't look past zinc for anything related to the immune system. And again, looking at that mucosal health is just so important. Um, what else? <laughs> kind of everything. <laughs> can, I, can I just ask you, um, talking yeah. about high-dose vitamin C, now obviously this is going to be far greatly reduced in, a, in an infant and a child. Yeah. 
So what dose do you go down to? Do you have any caveats on age that you might institute a therapy? Uh, I guess with any of the oral supplementation, I'm always mindful in infants who haven't started solids. Um, I guess that's kind of my line in the sand because you don't really want to be putting too much other than whatever milk they're having through the digestive system until it's a little bit more mature so they can actually break things down and absorb it. Um, and, you know, all of our supplements, while there's definitely brands out there that are amazing and very clean, there tends to be excipients and flavours and things like that that you don't necessarily want to be giving to a really young baby. So I'd say from six months onwards, um, but still I'd probably be a little bit more cautious in those younger, like six to 12 months, um, around dosage and again they're fast responders so you don't tend to need that much so you know oh gosh i'd say like if we're talking a thousand milligrams is a normal dose for an adult then a thousand milligrams over a period of time would be a high dose like very high dose for a baby so you know 250 milligrams might do the trick um but often you can get these pre-formulated um you know, children's supplements that will have a combination of like a bit of vitamin A, a bit of zinc, a bit of vitamin C. Um, but with something like vitamin C, for example, really the worst that's going to happen is a bit of a loose stool. And <laughs> generally they've got stool? pretty loose stools it's anyway. Loose stool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's something that, you know, if you were to play around with that dosage range, you're not going to do a whole lot of harm. Um, but obviously, and I think this is with all patients, like going to food where we can and really encouraging families, especially as they're starting that feeding journey, to look at those nutrients or those foods that have those nutrients that are going to be a bit more therapeutic. Um, and, you know, coming back to respiratory things and immune system, something like bone broth I find is so fantastic and so easy to give to babies when they're starting to eat and it's going to be great for not only the gut and helping to, you know, heal and seal that gut lining, but same effect within that you've got if it's chicken broth in particular it's really rich in n-acetylcysteine so you've got all of those properties of like helping to break down the mucus mm. you can add things to it like your garlic and your onion and your ginger and those you know culinary herbs that we've got to um further support the immune system and break down mucus so yeah there's so much that we can do and because they're such little people where we might have to drink you know, liters of broth to have a really therapeutic effect. A little baby only needs to have a small amount mixed in with whatever they're having or they can sip on it in a bottle um, and generally it's going to have a more therapeutic effect for them. You mentioned colostrum earlier on and yes. this is one of my most favourite things to use in any gut infection. You know, I, I think I might have spoken to you earlier about its use in nappy rash. I've had severe excoriation with a poor child with nappy rash and, um, I mean, to the point where there was blood on the child's nappy. It was horrible. And um, within three days, this this mother thought I was... You know, better than sliced <laughs> bread. But I said, it's not me, it's colostrum. This is how this yeah. stuff works. And that was only topically. Um, actually, no, topically and internally. But it's mm. so, so beautifully soothing. It's just yeah, gorgeous absolutely. stuff. If mums can somehow get their hands on a deep freezer before baby's born and express colostrum and have a stash, that would be amazing and when you're freezing it that way it depending on the type of freezer and how often you open it but sometimes you can it'll last for 12 months which is so great to get mm. them through that first 
atmosphere of life with your colostrum um it really is liquid gold i'm kicking myself because when jude was born i actually had expressed and frozen quite a, a fair amount of colostrum and stupidly took it all out of the freezer to take to the hospital in case we needed it which we didn't need any right, right. and i was like oh no yeah. i'm just gonna throw out Oh, this like it's yes yeah, so valuable so anyway we've got a chest freezer now so second time around doing <laughs> things differently chest freezer full of colostrum that's a, there's a yeah great not yet but <laughs> that's the goal <laughs> um herbs now i mean i can still remember my firstborn um his fifth word was etnasia a three-syllable oh. word you oh, know and, and he I love it. and he loved it whereas my other yeah. son hated it <laughs> um but admittedly we had this beautiful um, it was a, a honey and glycer tract flavoured, mm -hmm. sorry, honey flavoured glycer tract echinacea, but it, it had the tingle, was really yeah. good quality. Um, and um, he loved it, mm -hmm. um, along with colostrum and that sort of thing. So tell us about your experience. How early do you use these herbs? Yeah, look, That's I mean, there I'm kind of guided by the parents and how on board or not they are some parents are pretty cautious around herbs and understandably like they are often in an alcohol extract when i'm dosing for infants i'm doing drop dosing so the amount of alcohol that they're getting is like so so minimal that i personally feel totally comfortable with it my son unfortunately got a little cold when he was only four weeks old so we went off to my herbalist and um I had him on herbs at that age. So that for me personally felt really comfortable to give them directly to him. The alternative, if Bub's really young and, you know, mum and, and dad aren't comfortable, then you can also dose through mum. And we do know that some of those herbs will make it through the breast milk. Um, it's not quite measurable, but there'll be some influence. But otherwise, like I feel pretty confident to, um, yeah, do that drop dosing in really young children. And I know a lot of the, you know, very old school traditional herbalists, um, they would also do drop dosing of herbs. I guess that's, you've just got to lean into what you as a practitioner are comfortable with um, and obviously communicating with the families as well. And they'll let you know if they don't feel okay with it. Like it's not a topic to be trying to convince people to get onto the herbs if they don't feel comfortable. Um, but some people, you know, they've grown up taking herbs themselves. So they're just like, yeah, great, let's, let's do it. So yeah, did that answer the yeah. question? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, what about, are there any herbs that you're cautious of, particularly with, say, upper respiratory tract infections? The thing that will keep parents up at night is that horrible dry cough. Yes. And, and so talk, can we talk about herbs like, you know, licorice marsh, marshmallow versus wild cherry? Yeah. So I would very confidently actually use all three of those herbs. Um, I mean, the wild cherry is fantastic as a cough suppressant and you want to use it appropriately. So at nighttime, when you've got a child whose sleep is disrupted, that's a good time to use a herb like wild cherry because you do want to have that suppressing ac action. But, <clears throat> excuse me, so if during the day you actually want them to be able to get the cough out and break up mucus and yeah, get that out of the body, then it's not going to be appropriate to use that kind of herb. That said, you don't want to be using a lot of your really stimulating expectorants in very young children because, as I mentioned before, they don't actually have that same cough reflex. So 
things again like licorice and marshmallow really soothing licorice very very gentle expectorant um, that would be perfectly fine to use and I actually recall my one experience with natural therapies as a child was my sister had this horrible continuous cough all day all night that went on for months that no one could really figure out what was going on and I remember mum must have been at her wit's end mum's actually a nurse so this was far out of her usual um, toolkit but took her to see a naturopath who I remember vividly (laughs) gave her a tincture of licorice and marshmallow and at the time I felt really hard done by because like why does she get to have licorice and marshmallows I want to have licorice marshmallows yeah now I know better (laughs) but they're really beautiful um, herbs for that sort of pediatric dispensary Um, I mean echinacea like you mentioned the tingling can sometimes be a bit off-putting for kids some don't care at all and again if we're talking really small dose then it's not going to be the same as if you've downed five meals of echinacea yourself no, that's the trick is to use small yeah. doses let the everybody gets used to it you know there's a very it's the people who are truly allergic to the asteraceae family the daisy family they you don't give echinacea to them um yeah. at all uh for that risk just because of it's a risk um yeah not- but i think also warning patients that they might have that sensation so they don't think they're having an allergic reaction yeah. um, is important as well. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I can still remember the first time I, typical stupidity, just overdid the, the echinacea on my first ever dose. I thought I was going to choke. Um, but now no. I don't dilute it now. I just drink it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I still have to dilute it. But it might yeah, have something to do with the alcohol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll talk about that at the AA meeting. Um <laughs> What about things like, we were mentioning otitis media earlier on. Mm-hmm. Historically, I've heard of the use of garlic oil drops. I've been reticent. I've never used garlic oil. I have, however, used colostrum in a non-perforated um, mm. eardrum. I won't use anything externally in a perforated eardrum, obviously. But the other one, and I never actually got these because there was only one supplier that I could find. And it was mullein drops. Have you ever used yeah. these? Yeah, and fantastic. Um, and often combination of the garlic and mullein together are really, really nice. So, again, quite soothing. You don't want to put them in the ear if there's any um, perforation, but assuming that there's not, or not assuming, you want to know for sure that there's not a perforated eardrum. Um, yeah, beautiful. Helps to definitely clear that infection, give a bit of pain relief, um, even actually just doing like a warm olive oil and you can infuse it with a bit of garlic at home can be really nice and soothing. Um, and interestingly, like back to the, you know, usage of antibiotics with otitis media, we didn't see a reduction in pain relief there, but we do have these things in our toolkit um, that can help to reduce that pain. Even just doing like a warm compress can be really nice. Um, yeah, I think it's just about keeping the child comfortable. And I've had an ear infection in my adult life as well, and it's very painful. I can totally understand why parents want to reach for, you know, something that's going to get their child out of pain quickly. Um, but, yeah, now knowing what we know or what I now know about antibiotics that I didn't know when I was a child, obviously didn't have a say back then. Um, but I think, yeah, if we can avoid those where possible, mm. that would be really, really important. Yeah. And, and obviously any vomiting, any, any um, uh, 
forgive me, dizziness to the point of not being able to stand, that sort of thing. Yes. That's yeah. a, con a condition where it might be a middle ear infection and you really yeah. need to, or an inner yes. ear infection, you really need to get them. Yeah, and I think with everything paediatric, like if you're worried if things have changed or if things have progressed rapidly, don't call your naturopath. You call your doctor or you go straight to the hospital. It's really better to just get it checked out and be told, no, there's nothing to worry about um, than wait and see um, when, yeah, maybe there's this sort of sudden progression of symptoms. I think always better safe than sorry. Yeah. There was a, a story. I've just written down a point here. Uh, I was recently reading a story about your asthma may be indeed severe reflux. Now, that was pertaining mainly to adults, but I wonder if these ch children with, um, you know, polaric stenosis and undiagnosed... Polaric stenosis is a bit severe. That's normally projectile vomiting and things like that. But let's say there's some issue with, um, with swallowing and they might be having regurgitation for whatever reason. Maybe their midnight cough... Uh, their asthmatic type wheeze may be not asthma. Absolutely. And same with ear infections, actually. They, because as you were saying earlier, the ear infection like often is coming from the throat. So if there is that um, reflux, then that can actually be something that's causing that inflammation and that recurrence of ear infection as well. So, yeah, I think definitely important to consider um, on the flip side, though, with a lot of babies being diagnosed with reflux and being put on reflux medication, we know that that then has a huge flow and effect to like not only the stomach acid, but then the makeup of the microbiota, which is going to influence the immune oh, system right. and their nutrient absorption and all of the things that go on from that. So, yeah, again, it's like it's so great when you can catch families before Bobby's even arrived so you can educate them and let them know that there's these things in your toolkit and sort of be that um, point of contact when it's not a medical emergency mm. so that perhaps you can maybe buffer some of these other things that can occur as a side effect of whatever other intervention has been done. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. There's definitely a rise in, I don't know if it's a rise actually in reflux because I guess like to a degree, all babies get reflux because their diet is entirely liquid and those sphincters aren't mature. Um, but I think our, I don't know, maybe it's our tolerance or our knowledge around dealing with that. And there seems to be a lot more children who are put very quickly onto your low second nexium and those kinds of drugs, um, which sometimes help the symptoms, sometimes not. But yeah, at what cost? Mm. Um, is the I was... I was heartened by, I know we're getting onto gut symptoms here, but they, they have a, a reflex action, if you like, with the lungs. And that is, um, uh, there was, I was heartened by some research, smaller studies, but it was positive for um, um, coagulants. Um, lactobacillus coagulants? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but it was very positive. It was good. And and then there was a, a negative trial and then a, they redid the, the original trial um, mm -hmm. and it was positive again. So, you know, obviously there might be something that we need to look at there, but I think there's a positivity. The other things, of course, are, are quite innocuous fibres like slippery elm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, depending on the age of the baby, I'm always a little bit reluctant to introduce fiber in a really, you know, young child whose digestive system is quite undeveloped. So, um, but I mean, definitely use of probiotics, definitely cleaning up mum's diet. Um, definitely like I would use herbs, um, quite comfortably in that situation. And I think also just a bit of education around like what is normal for a baby mm. um, because absolutely there's babies who have reflux and it is absolutely reflux. It's not just colic. It's not just being fussy. But there's so many other reasons that babies can seem unsettled um, and can be, you know, inconsolable. So, yeah, just kind of, I guess, eliminating those other potential factors, connecting mum with a lactation consultant so that it's not something positional or it's not, you know, to do with an under or oversupply or perceived under or oversupply. Um, yeah, I think there's, again, like education is key because then you can sort of intervene before maybe jumping to that extreme and know that the medication's there should you need to fall back on it. But if there's things that we can do in the interim to then prevent the flow-on effect, I think that's really, really important and useful. Are there any resources that you'd recommend for other practitioners who wish to learn more about treating childhood diseases? Um, I'm just looking about the books behind you there, Well-Adjusted Children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, Well-Adjusted Babies, that's written by a chiropractor. Um, she doesn't do from memory i don't know if there's a whole lot from like a herbal medicine um kerry bone kerry bone and rob santich did and the books didn't somewhere they? in here as well yeah, i have so kerry many bone books, and rob santich right yes yeah. they've got a fantastic book um about treating children and specifically from a herbal medicine point of view um mind henry foundation osiki, henry osiki wrote a book on asthma yeah okay I, think. I don't have that one in my collection. Don't tell me too many other titles. I literally don't have room on my bookshelf um, or time to read them, but I can't help myself. Um, but, yeah, like Mind Foundation, they have amazing resources on um, children's health. Um, ACNAM also do a module um, on paediatric health, which is great. Where else? Health Masters, they do. Am I allowed to name all of these yes. places? <laughs> yeah. They've got a few um, trainings on paediatrics as well. Um, where else? That's really good stuff. Can I make a call out to every practitioner, particularly in Australia, but also internationally? The Mind mm -hmm. Foundation is a charity which is set up to help kids specifically or more for um, neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, Leslie Embersitz does a, an absolute incredible job running on the smell of an oily rag and they need your help. If you are interested yeah. in treating and learning about treating children and helping supporting the children and the parents of mm. um, with these neurodevelopmental disorders, then please support the Mind Foundation. Really need your help. Yeah. And they've got a huge focus, obviously, um, when treating those sort of um, neurological disorders the gut obviously is a big part of that and then when we're thinking the immune system the gut is a big part of that as well so there's definitely a lot of information there um, and I think as well like yes while we can't treat children exactly as we treat adults we can be smart about it and we can see that there like there's a lot of similarities and a lot of the things that we employ with our adult patient that still will apply to a pediatric patient 
Um, and I mean, I don't know everything at all, but if people have queries or they get stuck on particular cases, I'm more than happy where I can to field questions. And so please feel free to reach out to me as well. And, Great. Yeah. I'd love that. That'd be awesome. Kate, I would love to have you back on again at, at another <laughs> stage because there's so much more to cover. And uh, I thank you, Kate, for taking us through yet another phase of your expertise. I mean, you are obviously so dedicated and you are you are not just responsible but wise in your motherhood and your practitionerhood. So thank you so much for sharing that expertise with us Thank today. you for having me. Lovely to be here. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.